All right, I think I'm on. All right, praise God. Boy, I love Christ Church. Christ Church is, is so precious. Um, just singing here with all of you today, my wife was asking me on the way, uh, here she goes, Matthew, are you excited to preach at a, at, a, at a different church, a church that we haven't been to before? And I said, Laura, absolutely, it's awesome. Uh, just to be with God's people uh, all over the globe is amazing to see. Uh, you know, the church is the only thing on the entire planet that Jesus shed his blood for, right? Think about that. There's so many things in this world that we find as precious and valuable and wonderful, but there's only one thing that God allowed his son to shed his blood for, and that's the church. That's you and me together. And even on our worst day, even at our worst, there's nothing better, nothing more precious in all the world than the church. And so I am so thrilled to be here with you today, Harvest. Uh, I, yeah, I'm the new senior pastor at Fairfax Bible Church. Not only do I love your church, but I love your pastor. I love Pastor Dan. So uh, just a little bit of a story here. Six months ago, I did not know Pastor Dan. And it's amazing to think how over the last six months, how much he's encouraged me. You know, in the book of Acts, there was uh, one of the apostles, uh, his name was Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement. Uh, His name actually wasn't, uh, wasn't Barnabas. That was kind of his nickname that was given to him and it caught on, son of encouragement. And I believe Pastor Dan is one of those with a gift of encouragement. Uh, So Fairfax Bible Church, as they were interviewing me and doing background checks on me, and I was following up doing background checks on who's this Fairfax Bible Church, I want to get to know them. They said, we want you to meet with someone. Of course, it was over Zoom because I was in the San Francisco Bay Area. Said a special guy to our church. Pastor Dan Hammer from Harvest Annapolis. And so we set up a meeting and we had a good time. I actually got to talk to Nate Newell. I don't know if any of you know Nate Newell. Nate grilled me. That guy, he was, he, he was sharp. He cut to me. I'm like, oh man, it was great. I loved it. Pastor Dan, I got on the, on the call with him and he just encouraged my socks off. It was awesome. In fact, afterwards, he says, hey, pa- Matthew, I just want to let you know, even if it doesn't work out with Fairfax Bible Church, I want to let you know you've got a brother here. You've got a church here that loves you, cares for you and your family. And he was texting me throughout the whole process, loving me, encouraging me, and so I want to thank you so much, Pastor Dan, for all of your encouragement. So uh, my wife, Laura, and I were so excited to be here. I think I've got a photo of my family that I'd love to show for you. Uh, my kids, they're not here today. They're with my mom, actually, who just moved from California. But I'd love to show you a photo, if we've got it, of my family. But we've got three kids. My wife, Laura, and I do. We'll be celebrating our 20th anniversary this December, wedding anniversary. So we're excited about that. Oh, there we go. So that is a picture of us on our way here from the San Francisco Bay Area uh, to the East Coast here, and so before we uh, drove just all the way across the country, we stopped in the Yosemite Valley. So that is the beautiful Yosemite Valley in Central California. So on your, yes, on your left is our oldest son. That is Judah. Uh, he's 19 years old. We've also got our other son in the back there. His name is Benjamin. He's 16. And then our little girl, Alethea, who will, uh, who's 12, 12 and a half now. And so uh, we love them. Oh yeah, I've included a photo with our, our little dog, Archie, uh, who's an Ohio State fan, Archie Griffin, Nicosia. So uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so not only am I an Ohio State fan, but I'm also a fan of a team, uh, which maybe I shouldn't mention here in this region between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. What's the Washington, what, what are they calling themselves, the Washington football team? Uh, who knows? The, the Redskins, okay, right, right. Of course, then there's the Ravens not too far away. I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, so uh, I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, all right, all right. <laughs> I'm getting some cheers, that's pretty good. Uh, anyway, uh, my family is originally from the eastern side of the United States, so it's kind of like going, coming back home for me, but uh, my wife was born and raised in California. I lived there for 40 years, so this was a huge transition for us, but it's a transition that God is, he's just been in the middle of all of it. And I'll share a little bit more of that story here in just a few minutes. But I want to invite you to open to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Now, I know 2 Chronicles is probably not the book you love doing your devotions in the most necessarily, but it's a, it's a phenomenal book that records the history of God's people uh, and was likely recorded after they were sent into exile and were turning back home. And they wanted to pass on this story of God's work through his people, Israel. And if you grab one of the Bibles that's uh, provided there for you, 
you in the back. We, I invite you. I want you to follow along in the scripture so you can see it for yourselves. It's on page 205, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And we're going to read quite a few verses here. We're not going to read the entire chapter. We're going to read verses 1 through 21. And then we're going to read uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Uh, so uh, let, let's, let's look at the scripture here together. And I like to always begin by asking the Lord to do one thing for me. Psalm 119, 18 says this. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. And that's our prayer this morning, Lord. Would you open our eyes? Follow along as I read aloud. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, and then we'll look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. It says this. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. But I've built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people Israel. But I've chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I've chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, it is not you who shall build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have set the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people of Israel. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand you fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you've promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you've spoken to your servant David. Verse 18. But will indeed God dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you promised to set your name, that you may listen to the, to, excuse me, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. I ask you to turn over to chapter seven, verse one. It says this, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped, giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord, friends. Amen? 
that's a long passage of scripture, but I, I just wanted to read it for you. Sometimes we take it for granted that scripture should be read in the house of the Lord, right? Uh, so thank you for bearing with that, that long section of scripture. But I want, I want us to talk a little bit about this dwelling place that Solomon had built. And you saw it in his prayer there. God had made a promise that he would dwell amongst his people Israel, but but God is, is, is amazing. We're going to look at this a little bit. What, what, what Solomon says in verse 18, can God really dwell with humanity? And, and that's really the title of our, our, our message today. Can God dwell with humanity? Now, this is happening probably uh, almost 3,000 years ago, probably around 900 or so BC before Jesus came even onto the scene in the area of Palestine at that time. And there Solomon is dedicating this grand house, this grand building to the glory of God in the center of Jerusalem as a symbol that God has located himself in the midst of his people. But if you were to go to this exact same spot today, you'd see a very different scene. I think I've got another photo for you there. While I was in college, I graduated from the Master's University in Southern California. My wife and I uh, got to go to college together. And uh, for, for three months, we got to study in, in, the, in the area, the, the nation of Israel. We got to spend a lot of time in Jerusalem. And I've been to that wall. And maybe you've recognized that wall. That's the Western Wall, sometimes known as the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, and what that wall represents is not one of the walls of the temple, but actually one of the walls of the mount and the walls that were built around the temple, not in Solomon's time, but in the time of Herod, who came along uh, in the scene uh, about a thousand years after Solomon, and he wanted to try and resurrect the glory of of this temple that Solomon had built, and he certainly built a, a wonderful building, but that building never never had the glory of God to fill it once again. And later on, not too many years after Herod built that temple, the the Romans came in and destroyed the city. And and all the Jewish people have today is this little section of a wall that represents the mount around which the temple was built. That's all they've got. If you could see in the upper left corner of that picture, there's a a gold dome there. That's That's the mosque that's built there, the Islamic mosque built on the Temple Mount, and it's there to this day. There's all kinds of tensions, as you can imagine, right there in that part of the world, and specifically in that part of the city of Jerusalem. And you see people, and they bow, as is their custom, the Jewish people bowing and weeping and praying, God, where is your presence? Where is your presence? Your dwelling place was supposed to be here with us. And I'm sure they go back and read passages like we read this morning and think, oh, what a day that must have been to see a glorious building. No other religious competition anywhere to be found. Islam was not even born yet. It doesn't come around for hundreds of years later. But to have a place dedicated to to worship the one true God, the God of Israel, and to see fire come down from heaven and the glory of God fill that place. That's why they bow. That's why they pray. That's why they weep. Is there a place today where we can say God is there? God is there or here or there or across the world. Where, Where can we find God's presence today. And our big idea from from the passage today, if you want to take down notes, I think there's some provided there for you. I will do my best to make sure you can fill out those blanks, by the way. Our big idea is this. Though we can be terrible roommates, and what I mean by we, I mean humanity, including Israel, including every person on the planet, though we as human beings can be terrible roommates, God has chosen to live with humanity because of his never-failing love. Though we could be terrible roommates, God has chosen to live with humanity because of his never-failing love. And we're going to see three things that Solomon does. There's many more. I just want to pay attention to three. So I know this isn't going to be an exhaustive message this morning, but it is going to be a message that highlights three things. What did Solomon do in this prayer? First of all, Solomon rehearsed God's faithfulness. 
Solomon rehearsed God's faithfulness. Secondly, Solomon recognized God's transcendence. Transcendence. And I'll define that for you here in just a moment. And thirdly, Solomon relied upon God's steadfast or never failing love. Let's take a look at those three things together. First of all, Solomon rehearsed God's faithfulness. And we see that in verses 4 through 17. And and Solomon is rehearsing the story of Israel, how God had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and made promises to their forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then, again, delivered them out of Egypt through his servant Moses and Aaron. And then Joshua led the people into the land to fulfill the promises that God had made to them. Well, not only did he fulfill those promises, but, but then God narrowed down his, his focus of his covenant with a man named David, a, a man that was identified as a man after God's own heart. And I know you've been going through Samuel, right? And you've been seeing the life of Samuel, the life of David, and, and so you probably remember the covenant that God made with David, a special covenant that said, you will have someone from your line sitting on the throne of Israel forever and ever. And we know that to be God's Messiah, God's anointed one who was to come. And, and Solomon was fulfilling that role here in our text today, but, but, but Solomon is rehearsing and he's remembering, God, you fulfilled the promises that were made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You fulfilled the promises that you gave to your people Israel and you fulfilled the promise that you gave to my father, David, that here we are realizing the fulfillment of your promises. And we see that several times that that. that Solomon is talking about this fulfillment of a promise. Verse 10, you see, the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. This fulfillment of this covenant and these promises that God made to Israel. Uh, We also see in verse 15 that that God fulfilled his promise to, to David specifically. You've kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand, you fulfilled it this day. Solomon is rehearsing. You made promises long ago. And I, I can't imagine what Abraham would have thought to see the people of Israel now in the land with this grand city and this great temple with the glory of God filling it. But what Solomon is doing is that he's not just looking back to the past. He's about to make some requests. But before he does, he rehearses and he remembers. And he says, God, you made promises hundreds of years ago. And here we are standing today to remember that you are a God who keeps his covenant. You are a God who fulfills his promises. Therefore, God, we look to the future Because God can be, you can rehearse the fulfillment of his promises in the past. He can be reliably called upon to faithfully fulfill his promises again in the future. That's what we have in verses 16 to 17. Again, it says, now therefore, O Lord, looking back to the past, he's now looking again to the future. God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne. In verse 17, now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you've spoken to your servant David. He's saying, I'm looking to the past. I'm remembering that you're a covenant-keeping God, and now I'm looking to the future and saying, God, do it again. Do it again. What's Solomon relying upon? What's he rehearsing? He's rehearsing God's faithfulness. I, I, I love the hymn that says, great is thy faithfulness, Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. You change us not, your compassions, they fail not. Our God is a faithful God. He keeps his promises. This is one of the great characteristics of the God of Israel. Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7. One of the, the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible itself. That's, that's an interesting thought. Exodus 34, 6 to 7. The most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible itself. It says this, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and what? Faithfulness faithfulness. Our God is faithful. 
Psalm 36, verse 5, picks on this, up on this theme of faithfulness. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the to heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. I love the poetic language of the Psalms. Your faithfulness extends to the clouds. And, and for, for the people of the Old Testament, they weren't flying around in airplanes looking down at the clouds. They were down on the ground looking up at something they could never reach something that they couldn't measure and said, your faithfulness is, is, is as far as the clouds are from the ground. Your faithfulness is amazing. It's immeasurable. It's unending. Lamentations. The prophet Jeremiah writes in Lamentations 3, 21 to 23, in the midst of grief. I mean, it's a, an actual book of lament and sorrow and mourning. Jeremiah writes, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Why can you have hope about the future, Jeremiah? Because of this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. That's why Solomon could look to the future. He says, Lord, I've seen what you've done in the past. You fulfilled your promises. I'm rehearsing that you are a faithful, faithful God. And I'm sure it was tempting for Solomon to feel worry, anxiety. I mean, his father was the one that really, I mean, he was a mighty warrior. He was a great king. He had some major flaws and a major failure. But overall, he was an amazing king. And I'm sure Solomon felt, I am not adequate for this task. As we've heard, I am like a guy with shallow end skills in the deep end of the pool here, right? I'm not ready for this, but I'm going to remember your faithfulness to your people Israel. You see, those who worry about their future fail to remember God's faithfulness in the past. Those who worry and are anxious about the future are those who fail to remember God's faithfulness in the past. Are you filled with worry and anxiety today? Are you worried about your future? Oh, I think we get from Solomon here some wisdom to say, rehearse God's faithfulness. Now, I told you about my family. We just recently moved a couple of months ago from the West Coast, from, from the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Um, and it was, a, it was a very big transition for our family. Like I said, I've spent almost my entire life there. My wife had spent her entire life there. It's all our kids knew. We love the church that, that the Lord sent us from at Valley Bible Church in, in the East Bay, the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was a hard, hard moment for us as we started to have discussions as a family. Are we going to really do this? Are we really going to go out and take this venture in the future? And I wish I could say that we, we just were these champions of faith and said, we believe God can do anything. Oh no, there were plenty of moments, friends, where there were tears and anxieties and worries that were expressed. We were worried. We were leaving behind beloved friends and, and a loving church. Questions arose, where, where will we live? Will we adapt to the East Coast? Uh, will we make new friends Will we find the connections, the relationships that we love so much? Will we experience that again for the future? But, but after a season where our, we were processing through the fear and the doubt and the worry, the Lord began to refresh our minds with memories of his faithfulness. And as a family, we got together and just rehearsed, hasn't God always been there for us? He provided for our family when I was out of a job for about three months and there was a moment when my wife and I, we looked at each other and we thought, how can this be? We've got more money in the bank account now to pay the bills than we did when I was working. God used his people to anonymously, and we didn't advertise it, they just anonymously heard about our, our predicament and they loved us and they cared for us. God's faithfulness, we rehearsed it. And not only that, but, but over several years, twice we were told that our house was going to be sold. We are always been renters, but they were going to be sold. And we thought, where are we going to move? Our kids were little at the time. And they looked to mom and dad, the people who should have the answers and say, mom and dad, are we going to be sent out on the street? Uh, where are we going to go? Where are we going to live? And we said, we don't know. But God provided for us. He gave us exactly what we needed. He showed up just in time to provide the housing we needed when we had nowhere to live Friends, those were the memories that as a family, when we look to the future, the anxieties and the worries that we felt, we said, don't forget God's faithfulness. If he's done it in the past, why wouldn't we rely upon him for the future? 
But you can't collect stories of God's faithfulness if you give up, if you check out, if you say, I, I got to figure this out all on my own, and you fail to pray and look to God and trust and faith. If you, don't, if you don't persevere through those moments, you won't come out on the other side and say, I've got some stories to rehearse of God's faithfulness. But friends, when we wait, when we pray, when we watch for him to work, we get to see him fulfill his promises in us, through us, and for us. Maybe you're here today and your heart has been filled with doubt about the future. Rehearse God's faithfulness. Rehearse his promises fulfilled. Rehearse how he showed up for you in your darkest moments. When in doubt, rehearse, remember his faithfulness. That's what Solomon was doing, but he couldn't stop there. Not only did Solomon rehearse God's faithfulness, but in this moment, before this amazing building that he oversaw the building of, he also, number two, recognized God's transcendence. He recognized God's transcendence. What does that mean? And and let's read verse 18 again. (coughs) But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I've built. What a statement. What a statement. Solomon's here and he recognizes, I've built the most amazing building that anybody has ever built in the history of the world. But even this glorious, magnificent, wonderful building, it's not adequate to to house you, God. You see, Solomon recognized God's transcendence. What it means, this transcendence of God, it means this, that God has revealed himself in all that he's created. We have scriptures that says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans chapter one says the things that can be known about God are clearly seen through all that he's made. Specifically, his eternal power and his glory can be seen through his creation. So God has revealed things about himself. However, God is above and independent of his creation. You see, we're not. I get tired. I get hungry, especially after I preach on a Sunday, right? I want some lunch. And you're probably starting to think, what's for lunch soon, right? Uh, we, we need rest. We need water. We need food. You know, if I go to the edge of this platform here and I decide that I don't want to fall and I take a step, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to fall. I'm limited by the laws of gravity, right? But God, though he's revealed in his creation, he's above it and he's independent of it. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need lunch later to be sustained. Uh, He takes a rest by choice, not out of necessity. God has revealed himself in creation, but he's above it, and he's independent of his creation. That's what Solomon recognizes here. I've built this building, but I, I can't build anything that can box God in or contain God. He's not bound by the limitations of this temple that I've designed. And we see in Psalm verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 4, it says this, the Lord is in his holy temple. And it's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Listen to this. The Lord's throne is not in Jerusalem, in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. You see, he can see all of us simultaneously in a moment. He can see everybody that's at Fairfax Bible Church right now in a moment. He can see anybody that's on the other side of the globe in a moment. Why? Because he's transcendent. He's above and independent of it all. Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2, as opposed to the idols that the nations bowed down to, idols that people can craft and make in these temples that they could build, they manipulate their little puny, phony gods, but not the true God of Israel. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? (laughs) What's the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is to the one to whom I will look, he who's humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What's Isaiah saying here? He's saying this, look, look, this is what God has said. You want to build a house for God? Guess who made the materials that you're going to use to build a house for him? God did, right? And you think you're going to contain him in this building that you've built for him? Oh, no, 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 don't be foolish. Our God is transcendent. He's above and independent over all creation. Isaiah 40, verses 18 to 23, again, God says through the prophet Isaiah, to whom then will you liken God, or what likeness can you compare with him? Meaning idols and images. An idol? 
A craftsman casts it, and the goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He's too impoverished for an offering. Uh, uh, The one who's impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to build an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell him, dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Our God is transcendent, friends. I love, I love uh, the... Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Our daughter, Alethea, right now, she's, she's reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I love this scene. If, if you've seen movies or read the books, there's a scene in which the children that are the main characters of the story, they're ushered into this, this invisible world from our eyes. And it's called Narnia. And there they are, and they're trying to navigate, and they're trying to flee from this white witch. And, but they start hearing rumors of this lion named Aslan, right? But they don't know that he's a lion, they just hear the name Aslan, Aslan, and, and some beavers who can talk. Again, it's a fantasy story. Some beavers, they invite them in, these children into the house, and these kids are hearing about Aslan, and, and Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, one of the children. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, Safe, Mr. Beaver said. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that image. Don't don't get it twisted, friends. You, you, You can't domesticate a lion. You know, anytime somebody tries to domesticate a lion, guess what happens? They get chewed up, right? Of course this lion isn't safe, but he is good. Oh, friends, sometimes we walk through this world and we think to ourselves, my God, I love my God, but is he big enough to handle this? Is he big enough to handle that? Is he big enough to handle the problems and the issues of my life? Friends, this God that we serve, we sang about it this morning, he's a roaring lion. He isn't safe, but praise be to God, he is good. He is good. Our God cannot be muzzled, fenced in, or boxed up. He's not like the idols of the nations that can be controlled and manipulated. He is transcendent. Now, this is bad news for those who try to rein him in. They will find that this lion can rip them apart uh, uh, if they do not honor and respect him for who he is. But this is good news for those in need. For those who come and bow to this lion, who is the true God, the one true God of Israel, revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, it's good news for those of us who are in need. This lion is greater, stronger, and swifter than any enemy you may face today. He isn't safe, but he is good. And Solomon recognized this. I can't box this God in. I can't build a temple that can contain you, God. You're too big for him, for it he recognized God's transcendence. What kind of issue are you facing today that you feel like this is just too big? I can't do this. First of all, rehearse God's faithfulness, but also recognize that your God is transcendent. He is not limited by what you are limited by. Whatever limitations you may feel, I want you to know, friends, that is no limitation for God. As the children of Israel, they're standing beside the Red Sea. They got Pharaoh and his Egyptian army ready to slaughter them. What does God do? He, he creates a wall of fire between him and his, uh, between the Egyptians and his people. And he parts the Red Sea so they can walk through on dry ground and be li- delivered. There's no limitations to what your God can do. He is transcendent. Look to the transcendent God today. Thirdly, <coughs> Solomon relied upon God's steadfast love. And that seems to be a recurring theme all throughout his prayer. Again, in 2 Chronicles 6, 14, uh, Solomon's praying. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love. Verses 19 to 21, he brings it up again. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. Listening to the cry and the prayer of your servant prays before you today that your eyes may be opened day and night toward this house, uh, toward the place that you promised to set your name, that you may listen 
to the prayer of your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel. Listen, Lord, because of your steadfast love. I love how this ends in this moment of transcendence when God sends down fire from heaven to consume the entire offering that Solomon had made for this moment. And what happens here? The the fire comes down and what do the people say? Chapter seven, verse three, when the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement. I mean, this is this moment of transcendence, right? And worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever, ever. Praise God that this lion is full of steadfast love. I usually don't talk too much about Greek and Hebrew words. It can get a little bit overbearing and a little bit uh, much, but I I want you to hear this word. It's, It's God's hesed. It's his steadfast love. It's his never failing love. It's his loyal love. It's his covenant-keeping and gracious and compassionate love that he has for humanity. And you can't outdo it. You you can't outlast it. You can't do anything even to undo it. In fact, that's what what happened in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they said, we'd rather pursue our own way than pursue your way, God. They were shut out of the garden. But in that moment, God said, my love never fails. I'm making a promise to you even in spite of your sin. Since God is transcendent, how could we ever hope that he would relate with us, relate with you and relate with me? Friends, uh, I don't know about you, but I feel awfully sinful very often. I look in the mirror and and I see my failures and my flaws. The more I know Jesus Christ, the more I see his beauty and glory and majesty, and the more I see my finiteness and my brokenness and my sinfulness. And I wonder to myself, God, why would you ever want to dwell with me? I'm such a lousy roommate. Why would you ever want to talk to me? I'm such a lousy listener. It's because God is full of chesed, steadfast, never failing, loyal, gracious love for humanity, for you and for me. And that's what Solomon was relying upon. If you're ever going to dwell in our midst and listen to us when we pray to you, God, because you know, (coughs) excuse me, that we're a sinful people, it's only because you're full of steadfast love. He trusted in this. He had reliance upon God's steadfast love. You see, he was looking back at the past, at God's faithful work and his track record, but he was resting in his steadfast love for the present and the future. Because of God's steadfast love, Solomon believed that he would dwell relationally with his people. You see, the temple was not where God would limit himself, but it was the place where God, because of his chesed, would locate himself amongst his people. And this was an immense and gracious gift. God is full of chesed, steadfast love, covenant-keeping love, never failing love. In fact, we're told in the Bible that he is love. And I I read some verses for you that describe God's faithfulness, but those same verses use this term about God. Again, Exodus 34, six and seven, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, unfailing, loyal, faithful love. Again, Psalm 36, 5, which also describes God's faithfulness as that your steadfast love, your chesed, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Just like you can't measure his faithfulness, well, his love goes beyond that. Look at the stars. That's how big his gracious, loyal, covenant-keeping love is for you and for me. In Lamentations 3, 21 to 23, again, describing God's faithfulness, also says, I have hope because of this, because of the chesed of the Lord, his faithful, never failing, steadfast love and his mercies, they have no ending. Jesus illustrated this chesed when he was teaching people what this God is like. In Luke chapter 15, you may know the story, the story of the prodigal son, 
And he talks about a father that has two sons, and one of those sons decides that he wants to leave. He wants to go. He wants to take all the inheritance that's due him when his father dies. And he says, Dad, I'd rather you be dead now. I want the inheritance. Give it to me. I want to go live my life. And he does. And he spoils all that inheritance on awful, evil, wicked things. And he, and he spends it all, and he's got nothing left, and he's eating just even the food that the pigs would eat. And he says, but I know my dad. Maybe my dad will let me come back and be his servant. And we know the story that Jesus tells in Luke 15, that that dad was not willing to let that son be a servant. Why? Because that dad was standing waiting to see that son coming back. And that father, that father in the story runs to the son after all that he's done and he wraps his arms around him and says, my son is back from the dead. Why? It's a picture of God's chesed, his steadfast, loyal, unfailing love for you and for me. That's our God. That's why we can rely upon him for the future. No matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done, no matter your past, your background, your ethnicity, doesn't matter. No matter where you are from on this planet, no matter what you've done, you have a place in the family of God because he's full of chesed. He loves us. He loves us with an unfailing, big, humongous, immeasurable love. God is big, and he's bigger than humanity's sin. Neither Solomon or Israel or anyone of all humanity deserved that God would dwell with humanity, but God in his love was going to put his location down in the middle of sinful people. He would listen to them when they pray because he's full of chesed, steadfast love. No matter how much you've blown it, friend, no matter how ugly your past is, your sin is no match for the never failing, the chesed love of God. But Solomon's temple doesn't stand today. I showed you that picture earlier of, of the Western Wall in Jerusalem. That's all that's left. So where is God dwelling with humanity today? What hope do we have? See, in 586 BC, that beautiful temple that we read about this morning was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They were, uh, people of Israel were punished because they turned away from their God. Has God abandoned Israel? Has God abandoned humanity? Is there any hope that God would dwell with humanity again? That's where the gospel comes in, friends. That's where the good news comes in. Our big idea again this morning is though we can be terrible roommates, God has chosen to live with humanity because of his never failing love. Three ways we could see in closing that God dwells with humanity today through the gospel. First of all, in Jesus. In Jesus, God dwelt with humanity. We know from Isaiah chapter 7, 14 that there would be coming a son and his name would be called, we celebrated at Christmas, Emmanuel. It means God with us. The gospel writer Matthew applies that term to Jesus himself. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's the place where heaven and earth intersect. He's a foretaste of what to come. Where can God dwell with humanity? Well, there was a God dwelling in a human body walking in our midst. And the apostle John says, we touched him. We held him. We, we dealt with him with our hands. God in human flesh. John 1.14 says, and the word who is the son of God, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, templed among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. A chapter later, Jesus is walking around and, and, and he had just cast some people out of the temple because they were doing some wicked things, selling some merchandise that was, should have never been sold in the temple. And people were asking, what kind of authority do you have walking around here like you own the place? And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, they didn't understand what he was saying at the time, but what, what Jesus was referring to was that his body is the temple, the dwelling place of God. And you could kill this temple, Jesus is saying about his fleshly body, but in three days he would raise it up, and he did. He rose from the dead, God in the flesh. Colossians 2.9 says this, for in him, Jesus, the son of God, the Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
Friends, the good news of the gospel is this, is that because God is full of chesed, he could not look down and say, I I can't dwell with these people. I'm going because of my love. And Jesus says, yes, Father, I will go. I will put on human flesh and I will dwell in their midst. This is good news for you and me. It's a sign of an age to come that God will dwell with us forever. Well, where else does God dwell? Because of the gospel in the church. In the church, God dwells with humanity. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 to 17, the apostle Paul writes, do you not know that y'all, you all are God's temple? You together in this room here today, it's not this building with this ceiling and walls and chairs and carpet. It's you, living stones put together are called God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. This is amazing stuff. And if anyone destroys God's temple, that lion God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple That's why I said at the beginning, I love the church. I read about the church. We read about the church. There's no other place, no other group, no other organization, no other team on the planet that compares with this group of people in this room here today who know Jesus Christ. In us, right here, God dwells in us through his spirit. Paul also writes, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you Gentiles are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him you're being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit You, me, us together. My family at Fairfax Bible Church, we meet in different locations, but friends, through the blood of Jesus and through the spirit that's been given to us, we together are God's dwelling place. Any church that truly proclaims the good news about Jesus Christ, we drive by them on Sundays, we see them, we bump into them, that is God's dwelling place. Right here with you and with me. Oh, God is full of so much chesed that he would dwell in you and in me and in us together. And finally, on the earth, God will one day dwell with humanity forever and ever. And you can fast forward in this story of the scripture about God dwelling with humanity. Just as humanity was cast out of God's presence in Genesis 3, Revelation 21, it's the coming home party. Revelation 21, John writes, I saw heaven, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. That's our future, friends. We saw a foretaste in it in Jesus, the dwelling place of God and humanity together. We see it now as a, as a further foretaste in the church, but there's coming a day when God's city and his dwelling place descends from heaven and plants itself on the earth, and the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God in a new creation. That's our future, being with God forever because of his never-failing love. Though we could be terrible roommates, God has chosen to live with humanity because of his never-failing love. Finally, I want to ask this. What does this mean for Monday? All right, Matt, great. That's fantastic, but I'm going back to work tomorrow. How does this impact my life? Tomorrow and Tuesday and through Saturday until I meet here again next Sunday. Well, I just want to propose to you that the gospel The good news about Jesus Christ, our living Lord and Savior, is the message about God's pursuit of you and me to dwell with us because of his never-failing love. And as we rehearse God's promises in Christ, as we recognize his holiness and our sinfulness and his transcendence, and as we rely upon his steadfast love for us, we get to enjoy his presence in us now and forevermore. Friend, What does it mean for Monday? I don't know what kind of trials or temptations you're feeling. 
I don't know what kind of threats you feel that, that you feel somehow that it could separate you from God's presence with you and for you today. I don't know what kind of brokenness and, and rebelliousness that you see in our world. And you see it, I see it on television, I hear it on the radio, I see it on social media. I feel it in my own bones and in my family and in my body and in my home. Oh, we need the presence of God more than ever before. And his never ending, unfailing love for his people will never run out. And as you and I, as we're released out into the world, in our jobs, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, with our families, we're released out with the presence of God living in us. You see, you can't solve your spouse's problems. I've tried, she doesn't hardly have any, but uh, she's learned she can't solve all my problems either. We can't solve our kids' problems. We can't solve our neighbors' problems, our coworkers, our bosses' problems, certainly not our government's problems, amen. But there is one who can, and that's the lion, the one who's come to dwell in our midst and has put his presence in our hearts. God has chosen to draw near to this broken world today through who? Through you and through me. Because of God's indwelling spirit in us, his new and eternal house, that's who we are, God can meet his people right in their need. You see, because of God's spirit dwelling in you, you take the presence of God wherever you go. But you may say to yourself, man, I'm not God. You're right, neither am I. We aren't God, but through the gospel, God has blown open the doors and the walls right off his, his dwelling place. He cannot and never can be contained in a box. No, friends, it's better than that. He's with you. He's in you. He's for you. And he's commissioned you to proclaim a message of good news centered on Jesus, who is God with us. Take Jesus with you into the brokenness of this world. He's got the biggest shoulders that you could ever imagine. He isn't safe, but he is good. And he can carry the burdens that you feel today and he can carry the burdens of those that you know and what they feel as you go to meet them on Monday. So I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. We're going to just close in prayer. And I just want to reflect. You may be at a different spot in your life today feeling like I don't feel the presence of God in my life and I just want to pray over you and over us as we close. How have you felt like God's been distant in your life recently? I'm going to ask you take a moment right now to rehearse God's faithfulness. Recognize his greatness. Rely on his chesed, his steadfast love for you. Friend, he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Call upon him today, right now. Lord Jesus, come. I need you. I need to feel your presence today. Or maybe you've you felt like the brokenness you see in people around you is more than you could bear. In your own strength and wisdom, you have no solutions for hope, but there is one who lives in you, who has all the power and wisdom needed to transform and heal the brokenness you see in others. You don't have to invent some great solution. Just offer yourself. And more specifically, Lord, we offer ourselves to you. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices to you. We want to bring your unfailing love to those in need in our lives. Lord, we confess that we aren't big, but you're big enough to handle even the toughest challenges. When we show up, Lord, we trust that you show up with us and in us. So we make the commitment today, Lord, to make ourselves available to those who are broken and hurting in this world. And then we can't wait to watch you show off your mighty saving power as you go to work. Maybe you've never encountered, maybe you're here today, you've never, ever encountered the presence of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've always felt that God is far off and distant and you feel like even if he does, does exist, he doesn't care about the brokenness you've experienced in your life. Friend, today I want to encourage you, look to Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel is good news for us today, that you care so deeply about us that you were sent by the Father to come and dwell right in the midst of the dark, darkest places and brokenness of our lives so that through your death and resurrection, we can have new life with you now and forevermore. Friend, if you've never put your faith in him, I invite you today, open up your heart to this lion. He isn't safe, but he is good and he is for you. 
for his steadfast love, his chesed endures forever. Amen.